89 cents in the ashtray Half empty bottle of Gatorade rolling in the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots And a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy But that's alright People got their ways of coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it up Till all the pains are cloud of dust Yes, sometimes This is Our American Stories, and we honor the fallen soldiers in this country regularly. We don't just wait for Memorial Day to come. And equally important, we honor the families of those fallen heroes. And this song, I Drive Your Truck, is a song that Lee Lee Bryce covered. It was written by a couple of Nashville songwriters. And it came about because Paul Monty the father of Jared Monty. And Jared was a first-class sergeant, sergeant first-class, who was killed in Afghanistan in 2006. Paul, the dad, suffered deep grief, and he had his way of coping, as the song says. And his way of coping was to drive his son's truck. Well, Paul was on the radio one day in the Nashville area talking about his son Jared, talking about his grief, and talking about that truck, and describing the details couple of songwriters in the Nashville area just happened to catch that interview. And they knew, knew that something deep was happening. They pulled off to the side of the road and just started writing down the notes and the details of that father's grief as it's manifested in his, his use of that son's truck. And out came the song, and we covered the story of that song. And go to Our American Network. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and type in the words, I drive your truck. And listen to that terrific hour. We talk to the songwriters, and we hear from the dad, and it's just beautiful. And today, we're going to talk about Sergeant Christopher Allen Sanders from Roswell, New Mexico. And he died on January 9, 2008, in Iraq. And born in 1985, Christopher's story isn't uncommon from current military families, but nevertheless, it's deeply personal, patriotic, and a perfect glimpse into the struggle so many military families have gone through. We start with Christopher's mother, Maria, as she told us about Christopher and the character he possessed from an early age. He was, um, from the beginning, a very happy, steel-center stage, um, stealing the attention from the beginning of everybody. He was um, had a very strong moral character from the time he was little. He had a very fine line with right and wrong. He, from the time he started talking, he never shut up. He talked nonstop and loved life and was interested in just about everything, read continuously, and never really worried about fitting into the norm. He was his own person from the beginning. 
His brother Michael here describes how he saw the more happy-go-lucky Christopher he knew as a child transform after one one incident. I didn't really saw him as a tough guy until one of my friend's older brothers kicked my dog. And I didn't think twice about it because he was an older brother. He's a couple years older than me. And just in passing that same day, I brought it up to Christopher. And I just saw all this... <laughs> I had never seen him mad like that before. And he walked straight out the door, walked straight a couple blocks down, and went and knocked on the door. And he confronted the guy. He actually tried to fight him, and the guy ended up busting out a hockey stick because he was scared of my brother. And that was the first time that I ever thought I ever seen anybody scared of my big brother. And it was weird, and it was, like, cool at the same time. I was like, wow, like, this guy, he's a lot tougher than I. He lets on, and that's just because he was always just a real... He's a real quiet, calm, collected guy. Would always think before he acted. And then I saw that part of him come out, and I was like, oh, geez. There might be a little bit of a badass. (laughs) A little bit of a badass. And by the way, we heard from the mom that he knew right from wrong and had a deep sense of right from wrong. And I think what distinguishes our soldiers and so many of the folks who are cops or rangers or sheriffs is they put themselves in harm's way. And they do something about that sense of right and wrong. And boy, walking on that line and trying to be that person is not easy. And these guys volunteer for it. Christopher seemed almost timid as a boy, very studious. Uh, But he was ready for a fight when he knew in his heart that it was right. He recognized from an early age the meaning of morality and the importance of being an ethical man. And you're going to hear in this next clip from his grandmother that faith plays a role in so many of our fighting soldiers. And here's Margaret, his grandmother, talking about the first time she recognized this wonderful trait in her grandson. When he was a little boy and would go to the Stations of the Cross with me during Lent, he was the one that always went with me if others couldn't go or did not want to go. And he, I remember one time him looking at the stations and he started crying and he said why were the soldiers like that to Jesus I said well they were men who did not like what Jesus was teaching he said Nana when I grow up I want to be a soldier and I want to be a good soldier unbelievable by the way we know this if we've had kids there are some kids who just have this something special And it's not that all your kids aren't special, but there are these special, special kids. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They're not bullies. They fight the bullies. They're just so good. And just as there's evil in this world, my goodness, there's good in this world. And we love to call out the good here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, the story of Gold Star Sergeant Christopher Allen Sanders and his family remembering a fallen USGI. That's what we do here on Our American Stories every kind of story when we come back more of Christopher's story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of Sergeant Christopher Allen Sanders and his family. Christopher went on to attend the New Mexico Military Institute in his high school years. While there, his love for the military in America grew. He met his future wife, and he had plans for future success. This plan continued until one fateful day that his mother says changed everything. He had planned to attend college when he finished and then go into the Army as an officer. Then, unfortunately, when 9-11 occurred, he decided that he needed to go sooner. He felt he took it very much to heart when um, we were bombed and, I'm sorry, when the plane flew into the Trade Center and to the Pentagon, he grabbed our flag off of our roof at home and went down to Main Street and stood on Main Street flying the flag in unity with the rest of the nation, and that was when he decided he couldn't wait any longer. He needed to go. So he went down with his grandfather, um, Jose Rodriguez, and his grandfather was there with him when he enlisted, without my knowledge, <laughs> and his grandfather was his best friend, so that's who he still wanted to share it with, and he enlisted and came home and told me he had already enlisted, so our biggest surprise was that he wanted to go in at the bottom. He didn't care. He tested extremely high on the ASAP, and he could have gone in at pretty much anything he wanted to do, but he wanted to start at the bottom. Um, and work his way up. He felt that was a more respectful way to go. He could have had his pick of any military occupational specialty, but he chose to go into the infantry. He could have gone to college and become an officer, but he chose to enlist. Ultimately, Christopher chose a path that would lead him to become a hero. Following his enlistment, he soon went and served his first tour with 1st Battalion, 24th Infantry Regiment, and was deployed to Iraq. After coming back, he quickly worked to get back for his second tour, this time with the 3rd Squadron, 2nd Striker Cavalry Regiment, 1st Armored Division, much to his father, Kelly Sanders' concern. My mom wasn't really excited when he went off for a second time. Uh, the first time when he came back, he was pretty high-strung. He was almost like a different person, you know, uh, really, really high-strung and agitated and, you know, understandably so, but he was he was definitely a different person when he came back, so I wasn't looking forward to him going off for a second term of having to put up with the constant threat. Yep, and we saw this in American Sniper. Chris Kyle came back a different man, and he came back again even even further from who he was when his bride had married and met him. But just like any soldier, Christopher answered the call to duty and began to serve that second tour, Things were going well, but then after Christmas and the New Year, something sudden came up. Christopher and his team were sent on a mission to Sinsel, Iraq. They entered a building, one that had recently been cleared of explosives, and then everything went wrong. According to a New York Times report the following day, quote, The courtyard was a scene of devastation, strewn with medieval mud brick and modern cedar block, shattered alike by the explosion that killed six American soldiers and their Iraqi interpreter. From the alleyway outside a day later, there was little sign that this was the house where the bomb exploded during an offensive to clear Sunni insurgents from the northern Diyala River Valley, 60 miles north of Baghdad. And then the family received that call, the call no family of any serviceman ever wants to get. We're in Carlsbad, and 
and the army was trying to get a hold of Dara. Dara was staying with us in Carlsbad, and the army was trying to get a hold of her, and they didn't know where she was, so they called her dad, and her dad called us and said, hey, the army's trying to get a hold of you. They, they want to talk to you about Christopher, so we knew right away something was up because the army wouldn't call. And, I, you know, the whole night's a blur, but I can remember Dara calling friends in Germany, calling everybody, trying to see what was going on. And uh, Marie and I were just pacing on the living room, but trying to figure out, you know, gosh, am I just, you know, is everything okay? What's going on? And and uh, finally, somebody suggested, I believe I could be wrong, but suggested that they call the American Red Cross. And so we called, Dare called the American Red Cross, and she was talking to them, and they wouldn't answer, and they wouldn't answer, and. I seem to remember her screaming, you know, tell me what the heck's going on with my husband. And then she dropped the phone and fell to the floor. Maria and, and Maria fell into the living room floor and was screaming, and Dara was screaming. I ran over and I picked up the phone and I said, what is going on? And they told me. I can remember just screaming at the guy, calling him a blanking liar. So like, well, you're a blinking liar. You're a blinking liar over and over and over again. I put the phone down, and Daryl went her way, and Mary went her way, and I went my way. And, uh, of course, Beth and Michael were calling like crazy, and, and so Beth called me and was screaming, you know, what the heck is going on? And I told her. And she told Michael. And I went back to check on Daryl, and Maria were just sitting in corners, just crying uncontrollably. And, I don't know. I would just, I went and stood in the front of our living room foyer and just sit there for a couple of hours just trying to figure out what the hell had just happened to our lives. What the hell had just happened to our lives? It's hard to imagine what a family goes through when they hear such news. Here's Christopher's mom on her personal experience after hearing the tragic news. Finally, we were given the news, well, Dara was, we handed her the phone, and Dara got the news that Christopher had lost his life, and she, I didn't quite know what to think at first, because she just fell to the ground screaming, and her, and Christopher's father grabbed the phone, got the news, and started yelling at them, and then I realized that Christopher was, had lost his life. And then we started calling everybody to notify them. And here's Dara Sanders, the bride and the widow. We moved back from Germany, and we stayed really close with all the family we had, to to keep each other strong. And his children, um, Alexander and, and Jacqueline, um, they grew up with with their grandparents, Christopher's parents, and we all continued, you know, telling our memories with him, with them, so they, so they knew what kind of person his father, what their father were, or was. Let's see, it didn't get better; it just got easier to handle. Four thousand men and women died in Operation Iraqi Freedom. 4,000-plus families across America had to go through this very same trial. 
Christopher's unit had a total of seven families go through this tragedy. And those families are now connected, sharing stories of their sons and husbands through a Facebook page. We leave you with a secret revealed to us by Christopher's eldest son, Alec. While talking to us, he told us about a wish he had yet to share with even his mom. I plan to follow in his footsteps by going to Nemi and joining the military to honor him. Um, We all still talk about some good memories and how funny he is, but I might try to act as much as a good person as he was to continue his legacy. And there you have it. The son wants to follow in the dad's footsteps and go to the New Mexico Military Institute and then serve in the Army. And we're going to leave right now with Sergeant Christopher Allen Sanders' favorite song, Some Gave All, by Billy Ray Cyrus. This is Our American Stories, Sergeant Christopher Allen Sanders' story and his family's story. I knew a man called him Sandy Kane. You folks even knew his name. But a hero, yes, was he Left boy, come back man Still many just don't understand About the reasons we are free I can't forget the look in his eyes Or the tears he cried He said these words to me All gave some Some gave all Some stood through for the red, white, and blue And some had to fall And if you ever think of me Think of all your liberties and recall Some gave all This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we like to ask writers to read for us what they've written. A site that we like to go to is verilymag.com, and one of our producers came across an article on a very important topic, singleness. It's uncomfortable at times for us to talk about, but Nicole Poole wrote about it, and now she reads her piece for us. The best thing I ever did for my single self by Nicole Poole. This is how I discovered that marriage doesn't complete you. Last year, mid-lunchtime shopping spree, I asked my mentor a typical question. What advice would you give a young woman who just moved to DC? After a moment of thought, she gave me three pearls of wisdom. Number one, DC is a hard city to live in because people come and go. There may be times when you find yourself surrounded by friends, 
and then other times you find yourself alone. Number two, DC is a small town, so don't do anything to burn bridges because everyone talks. But number three, number three was the bombshell that would later change my life. Number three said, DC is a hard place to date for someone who doesn't want to just hook up. She told me about her own dating experience, which brought her to tears. I reassured her that she would find her husband one day. But then she wiped her tears and said the words I never expected any woman to say. You don't know that. I wanted to be persistent and say, you will. The truth was, I didn't know. I didn't know if she would ever find a husband. As I headed home that day, I thought about that statement for a while. The truth is, I don't know if my mentor is going to get married. And an even harder truth to swallow is that I don't know if I am going to get married. With this realization, I confronted a scenario I couldn't control or prepare for. Whether due to a dearth of marriageable men or the fact that there are more men in our age group who are just not interested in marriage or both, I believe a life of singleness is a reality that many young women like me face. While it may not be what you want to hear, heck, I didn't want to hear it. I do believe there's a positive side to this harsh truth. I know that when I was growing up, I felt like the messages aimed at women implied that marriage is the ultimate goal, that it completes us. No matter how many degrees you have or how many businesses you own, no matter how independent or self-sufficient you are, It can feel like being unmarried is a scarlet A that no one seems immune to. It can feel as though being married is the ultimate stamp of approval for being successful in life. After joining a single ladies small group at my church and thinking more about my purpose in life, the reality of marriage became easier to accept. It has become a more hopeful prospect too. The group is led by an unmarried woman in her 50s and the other women range in age from their 20s to 30s. When I first heard of the group, I immediately thought it was a place that would teach us how to prepare for our husbands, but that wasn't the case. The small group started with a simple premise, to acknowledge and eternalize the fact that we may not get married and discuss how living a fulfilling life regardless of our marital status. In the very first session, we were offered a powerful piece of advice. Accept singleness as a gift. Never in my life had I ever heard this statement. But I immediately realized that this was something I needed to do in order to truly be happy. I had to embark on a journey of satisfaction with myself and the relationship I have been blessed with, including my relationship with myself, rather than dwell on that one elusive connection. After that first session, I realized that I not only need to put to rest the idea that all women have to be married, but that I also need to encourage women like me to be content and active during our single years, however long that may be. As it happens, living a single life happily can be just as fulfilling as a married one. Instead of one accountability partner in my group, I have several friends and family members who are with me every step of the way. Inevitably, 
a feeling of loneliness occurs. And those are the times I turn to my group and spiritual life for solace. I often call a friend and share my struggles. Sure, it's not really the same as maybe a husband would be. But it's a reminder that as a single person, I'm not alone. Regardless of my marital status, the world still has to live with me. I still have to live with myself. So why not make it my best self? Yes, marriage is a beautiful thing. And to those who are married or are about to embark on that wonderful journey, I wish you much love, happiness, and bliss. Cherish your spouse, because not all of us will be granted the wonderful and unique opportunity. For some of us, there will be another way of life, to be single. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's time that we all accompany our single friends along their unique and unknown journey. Our world needs more singles groups that talk about making a fulfilling life outside of being married. Those of us who are destined for the single life need to feel that we are not alone and that we're not failures. Single men and women can have a well-rounded sense of family and belonging if we create communities that interweave not only the young and old, but also married and single people. We can find a space for ourselves and our married friends, family, lives, within their homes and around their family dinner tables, and our contribution will enrich the family dynamic. And to all the single ladies out there like myself, I say we should embrace the love that married people have. Attend dinners, go to conferences, and seek mentorship from married couples. One of my mentors opened up her home to me, and I got to know not only her, but also her husband and children. I've brunched with another mentor and her husband at least once every other month. And I still love talking about marriage because, well, I may very well get married. But even if marriage isn't in your future or mine, life is about relationships of all kinds. The best thing I ever did for myself was to put to rest the idea that my life has to be about finding my soulmate and getting married. Marriage may not be the best option for some of us. Each of us has our own narrative, and it's time we all got comfortable with that. I may never meet my Prince Charming, but that doesn't mean I need to be asleep while waiting. And that doesn't mean I won't have a happily ever after either. And, th- and thanks for that, Nicole. And thanks for that as well, Faith. And, and thank you to Verily Magazine. And by the way, as someone who was single until I was 40, a lot of my married friends and a lot of my friends just started to feel sorry for me. And, you know, when you haven't met the person you want to say, I do to, you shouldn't say it. And I hadn't found that person. And that's what I would tell people. I'm so sorry. I am so happy for you. I have no ill will towards your life. But I also was trying to console many of my single friends to live your life. Because if you walk around glum and depressed, it's going to be harder to meet that soulmate. And so live your life. And what a great and positive message, message, Nicole. And I had so many dear married friends. And that always gave me hope, too, that there was a possibility. I think we all want to find that person. It's not some romantic notion. This has happened for millennial, millennium and for millennials. So thank you for that young voice. Singleness is not a disease. Um, All of us have been single. We've all been married, and many many of my friends have been divorced, and they're single again. 
This is Lee Habib. We cover every kind of story from every age group, married, single, of faith, not. This is Our American Stories, Nicole Poole's story. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And I love it when Jesse just hits the Judge Judy soundboard for a while. What? What? And we love doing Judge Judy cases. That's what. And, well, what's the case today that we're going to be looking at, Greg? What did you dig up? I dug up the case of the irresponsible drug dealer. And uh, the reason I picked this case is because, uh, yeah, he's an irresponsible drug dealer, but there is some context to be found out here, and uh, I think it's going to have a little bit of a twist. Good. 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 Well, let's take a listen. What's the case about? Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, Edward, just got busted. You bailed him out. Yes, ma'am. An admitted drug user helps a dealer go free. Mr. Milan says it was to your benefit to get him out of jail. But did she set up this deal? The arrangement was Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this. Out of fear of getting cut off? She thought I was still going to be able to supply her. Judge Judy. Amy Shelley is suing her former friend, Edward Milan, for a loan to bail him out of jail. Edward says he never asked for Amy's help. All rise. All right, Hengler, set us up. Um, so Edward, he's the man that bailed. He got bailed out of jail. He's a former drug dealer, and uh, just we're gonna find out now about Melissa. Yeah, uh, she about she's uh, the friend, or no, she's actually the girlfriend of Edward, the drug dealer. Probably been sworn in, Judge. You may be seated. Is your name Folks Melissa? Stand over there. I assume that since you're standing with the defendant, you are a witness for the defendant. Is that right? Yes. How long have you been his girlfriend? Almost three years. You have children together? Correct. How many? One daughter. How old? 19 months. How many times has he been arrested since you've known him? Twice. For what? Um, Possession. Possession of drugs? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And? Uh, Running from the cops. I guess that's it. What were you arrested for twice, sir, since you've been involved with the lovely Melissa? Uh, I've got arrested for possession, battery, and... uh, Battery of whom? Battery of my girlfriend and... uh, Which girlfriend? Melissa. 
I just actually pushed her, but that's battery. You push somebody, that's battery. That and uh, along with, let me see, that, that's it. Those two things. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. What happens next, Angler? Edward, the drug dealer, was bailed out by his girlfriend. We just heard from her, Melissa. Her friend, Amy Shelley. Now, Miss Shelley, she's the one of Edward's customers. And we'll find out it's her meth customer. Well, let's hear how these friends ended up in Judge Judy's courtroom. Now, the plaintiff, Miss Shelley, was a friend of the lovely Melissa, and you got yourself arrested. So Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, what's your first name? Edward. Edward just got busted for the first time since you've known her or the second time since you've known her? First time. So that must have been for drugs. It was for a, a number of things. Being intoxicated, the drugs, and the uh, battery. And could you please help me and get him out of jail? That was the call. Is that right? Yes. How long had you and Miss Shelley been friends? Over 20 years. Have you used drugs with her? I'm asking you a question. Don't think about the answer. Just give me the answer. Yes. Frequently? Not in a while. Not in how long? A long time. So as far as you knew, she was not using drugs? At the time? Yes. Yes. Oh, she was? No. My apologies, Your Honor. At the time you called her to bail out Edward, did you think Miss Shelley was using drugs? Yes. And you? No, I was pregnant. What kind of drugs was Miss Shelley using? Meth. And where was she getting it from? Edward. So this is what the case is all about. You bailed him out. It's $2,500. $1,000 he gave you back. Correct. But you signed for the bail. Correct. According to you, he was supposed to pay for the bail, make periodic payments to the bail bondsman. Yes, ma'am. He did not. No, ma'am. You are stuck with it. So her meth dealer boyfriend <laughs> ditched her bail money. This is a good one, Gangler. What happens next? All right, now we're going to, Judge Judy's going to zoom in on Edward's employment and his recent criminal history. What do you do for a living, Edward? I just recently started working for Local 510. It's an event services like event management for car shows setting up for car shows what did you do before that uh before that i actually wasn't working and before that i was doing uh you know construction how long were you a drug dealer uh on and off for a couple years starting when and finishing when finishing the day i went to jail i went and spent like two and a half months there then you after, mean on this arrest yeah on this arrest when were you arrested for battery of melissa that day of melissa that day it all happened all at once since April 24, 2006, you have had no arrests. Is no that arrest. what you're telling me? Yeah, no arrest. Except for the day and a half after I was bailed out, which I was bailed out on the 26th of April, same, the same day that I was arrested. I uh, went right back to jail a day and a half later because of violation of probation. What probation? The probation that I was on originally, which was felony evasion, which is running from the police in my car. That's what put me on probation. Why were you running from the police? Oh, I, had, I was on... Edward, why I was on drugs in? myself. So you were on probation for driving while under the influence of drugs? No, no, I, they didn't give me an under-influence charge, but, you know, I was a user. So basically, um, I got the felony evasion, and that gave me the felony probation, which uh, I've, I, I violated when I, when I got this case. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. What, <laughs> does Judge Judy keep it together here? I Usually, well, like you up for breakfast. No, actually... <laughs> What you're going to catch on, what we're noticing here is is something that's going to unpack itself a little bit in a little bit, and that this guy is transparent. You can tell there's been a transformation in his heart and his life, 
Because he's a straight shooter. You notice Judge Duty's called up the other two and said, I want straight answers right away because they're hesitating. This guy is telling her more than what she's asking. So you know something's going on here. Well, let's find out. How long had you been selling uh, Miss Shelley drugs? Probably about a year. Just meth? Yeah, that's it. Where were you getting it from? Where was I getting it from? From other sources. How many customers did you have? Not many. You know, just basically trying to get by. How many? Probably about five. And you made a living doing this? Uh... Semi, a semi-living, not much. Okay. Your daughter's 19 months old. Yes. But since then, I've cleaned up. You know, I've been through a program. I've been clean for like two years since this incident happened. Fine. Now, you've been clean for two years, Edward. What program have you been through? Uh, It's called the Henry Olaf program. It's in San Francisco, California. Part of that program is accepting responsibility for your own actions? Correct. That it's not anybody else's fault if bad things happen to you. It's your fault. You're My supposed fault. to take care of it. You were arrested for felony possession on the 24th of April, 2006. Correct. Whose fault is that? Mine. Whose responsibility is it to clean up after you? Uh, my, my responsibility to clean up after myself. How much was your bail? 25000 10% of that, $2,500. So $2, yeah. How much did you pay? What I paid was nothing. My girlfriend used my money to pay for the bail. She gave the money to Amy. How much? I think it was a thousand, and then she also uh, paid a couple of payments because Amy was harassing her and texting her stuff. <laughs> so so far, Melissa used your money. Yeah. To pay her the thousand dollars up front. Correct. And then Melissa used her money to make a couple of payments. Correct. On the other fifteen hundred. Correct. So so far, I hear you not taking responsibility, Edward. Well, actually, I, I- hear. Melissa taking responsibility for your few payments. I was in jail. But I don't hear you taking responsibility. I was in jail. Did you give the money back to her? Did I give the money back to Melissa? Yes. Actually, no, I didn't pay Melissa back. Why? That's your program. Well, yeah. Well, what happened was, the arrangement was, and I remember this clearly, Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this, okay? Helping me pay this for the simple fact that she probably thought, my thinking is, she thought I was still going to be able to supply her. But when I was trying to clean myself up, I didn't, okay, want, I didn't want anything to do with that, you know? I, I want that part of my life to be over, so. Okay. Well, you know, he does sound pretty straight. Yeah. So what happens next? I don't know. Let's listen to her wrap it up. You've been honest with me so far, yeah. Edward. So I see no reason to think that you weren't honest about this. I'm not even going to ask Miss Shelley about your drug use, Miss Shelley. Absolutely. Absolutely what? By all means, ask. Did you ever use meth? I have indeed, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Did you ever get it from Edward? I did on two occasions, Your Honor. I just told? And you did? Yes. Perfect. I love everybody when they're honest. It makes my life so much easier. Edward, I want to explain something to you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you ensure that what you learned in the program in San Francisco is emblazoned in your memory. Oh, it is. Not yet. Who was selling drugs? Myself. Who was making money from the sale of drugs? Myself. Who knew that it was against the law? Me. Who took the risk of selling the drugs? I did. Who got arrested? I did. Who got bailed out? I did. Whose responsibility is it? It's my responsibility. Then you pay the tab, Edward. That's what it means to accept the responsibility. Do you understand? I understand. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $1,100. That's all. Yeah, thank, thank you, Your Honor. Oh, he's excuse. You may step out. Wow, this is why people love Judge Judy. Mm-hmm. And she, yes <laughs> yes and she doesn't rip this guy though i mean this no. is a very unique judge judy she could see she could see that there was some change yep but not all the way not all yeah not all the way i mean he's still hanging on but uh 
it's also refreshing to see that uh, somebody with so much trouble can also turn around. This is Our American Stories. Judge Judy, thanks, Hengler. And uh, find some more for us. We love the show. It's the biggest show on television. She's got the biggest contract in the history of television. And I know sometimes you're busy. You're at work. You can't catch it. Sometimes we can't either. And that's why Hengler's here. And he brings us our favorite and some of the best and more interesting Judge Judy's here on Our American Stories. our American stories and our team is in love with another team called Nifty which stands for the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship these guys bring entrepreneurship classes and summer boot camps to economically disadvantaged areas where kids may have never thought about entrepreneurship before as an avenue for their future and they've reached over 500,000 students thus far our own Alex Cortez traveled to St. Louis to meet with one of the teachers who teaches this entrepreneurship class Obino Coley. Let's take a listen to his report. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Jamaica. Jamaica? Yeah, I was born in Jamaica, yep. I was born in Jamaica. Came here when I was like four. Why did your parents move here? Always opportunities, man. This is the, the, the best country, the greatest country in the world, man. They, what was their, What was life like for them in Jamaica first? Uh, farming. We, we stayed like, you know, Jamaica. A lot, when you say Jamaica, a lot of people think about like the, like the, the tourism parts of it. But there's like the actual the city part and the country part of it. So we're actually from the country, okay, like in high in the mountains part of Jamaica. So it's like farming and stuff like that. Was your dad struggling or was it just a tough life? Uh, kind of, yeah, this is actually, a really grinding life and I, I think there might be more actually, in America. Or actually, my dad, like I, I remember my dad, he when I was in high school, he was learning to read. Like and he didn't go to school. Like it was like one of those situations where you just stayed around the farm and worked. You know, you didn't really go to school, so he didn't. He didn't know how to read until you know I was in high school, and I just remember that. Why did he learn how to read? Why he learned? I guess is I guess something he just wanted to do against pers- personal goals. He never said it was. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's. You know, my kids are learning this now. I want to um, almost say you guys inspired him to do it. Nah, he wasn't one of those type of fathers, man. <laughs> nah, he didn't really express his feelings or anything like that. I just knew, like I I remember him. He used to work. Uh, he used to work at the hospital, third shift. And he used to like do custodial work at the hospital, and I re- I just remember growing up we had to me and my little brother had to wake him up to like go from go to work, and he'd be so upset, so mad that he had to go do this job every night, and he used to get mad at the first person he sees. So we used to like throw pillows at him and stuff like that. So when he woke up, he wouldn't see nobody, you know. He just so I just remember like I didn't, I I just knew I didn't want you know that type of life, and he always said education was important. Obino would get that education. But he also got something else that he didn't expect. So I graduated in 2002 from college with a bachelor's in business management in May. So I had my first baby that April. Then I had my second kid um, that December. So I had like so I like like one one so of the, for di- with different women. Well, two different with yeah. different women. And and the cool thing about me is like the second day of school, 
I, I do a two-day program. Uh, like uh, I tell kids everything how I got from from the start to finish. Wow! And a lot of kids they look at me and they don't know that you know I, I had two baby mamas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the term they like to use. But I also show them how I turn my life around from that. How I use that to motivate me that I didn't have three baby mamas. You know, yeah. sometimes we, we 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 messed up and we keep messing up. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. Why you gonna keep on making the same mistake over and over again? Sex is something that's kind of normalized now. But I just try to tell them the, like the, the the latter part of the story to it, and and the good thing is I understand how they feel because yeah. because you know it's not like I read in the book because I was in the <laughs> same place in the same you know so I think that's one of the reasons I have a good relationship with kids because I'm not a because I'm I'm not a stranger to them you know they know my story so it makes teaching a lot easier when you're not just a title to them when they, you know you're like a person and now I could I could get in their face I could. I could be gruff with them, you know, because I have that relationship now yeah. with them. And most teachers, you cannot, you can't teach off a title. You have to teach off a relationship at the end of the day. You mentioned, um, you know, learning from that after having two and, and not have become three. What did you learn or what did you change in your life? Kind of just bring me to that, that moment if there was a single moment or you uh, know, that changed things around. Definitely. Or? I remember it was 2005 was Christmas. It was Christmas having these two kids, and you can't, you don't, you know, you don't have a job, you don't have, you don't have no money to get no Christmas gift, and you know, Christmas is not about stuff like that, you know. But at the same time, you know, as a man, not being able to, you know, support my kids and all that stuff, and and at that time, I was I was in Chicago living with my mother, being back 25 years old in in your house with your mother, you got a you got a uh, a bachelor's degree, but you know. It was still hard. It was, it was still hard trying to find work at that time, and I just remember spiritually, like I knew what the problem was because my heart was in the wrong place. Cause, you know, I grew up in a church, but then ever since I graduated high school, I like my life went in a total different direction, and I just knew what it was, man. And I was like, okay, and then, you know, you have one of those moments you get on your knees, you tell God, you bring me out of this. Uh, I turn my life around, uh, but this time I actually, I actually kept my promise, man. I actually kept my promise. And I remember I got baptized at New Year's Eve. I've never been baptized or nothing like that. Wow. Actually, I got baptized at midnight. So I wanted to set up where I went down in 2005, and I came up in 2006. <laughs> and, that's how, and that's how I got baptized. Is that a common thing, or did you have nah, that special set up? I just had something I just wanted to do. That's why it just came to me. The pastor agreed? Yeah. <laughs> so I got baptized, uh, went down in 2005. <laughs> Came up in 2006, man. Yep, that was that's that's how I went. And when that happened, you know, I was still kind of lost. And if I if I'd never heard the word of God before in my life, he told me to do two things. He was like, because I, I stopped going to church. He was like, start going to church and start paying your tithes. And those are two things I heard him say. And I knew it was him because one, I tell kids it's like it, it never when it, when it came from me because I didn't I had no intentions on going to church. Sundays was my day to watch football all day long, and I've never paid my tithes. And another thing I tell kids is that, like, when I didn't do it, I felt funny inside. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I felt that conviction inside, so I knew it was God, and uh, that's how I got into teaching. So one day my pastor asked me to teach Sunday school. And at that age, I've never taught before in my life. I had no desire. My wife was a teacher. And, you know, and I was working. I was more like working like sales jobs, you know, random collections, sales. That was my background. And uh, I started teaching Sunday school. And I remember 
the change in the dynamics of our relationship when I became a teacher in Sunday school. You know, our uh, our little high and by you know conversations went to deeper conversations when I became a teacher. And you're I just you appreciated your wife's work more. Is that what you're saying? Say it again. Are you saying that you appreciate? Oh your wife's man, work more? yes. I remember yeah. one time. I I remember my first day teaching, and I came home and I just felt I fell out. I was so exhausted from teaching all day, talking all day. I had to get used to it. And I used to tell my wife, "You don't do nothing but stand up there and yell at kids. That's all you do." But man. And when we come back, more Robino Coley's story, a teacher at Normandy High School in St. Louis, Missouri, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Alex's conversation with Obino Coley, who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class with a curriculum that's provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Let's return to Obino and Alex's talk. At this point, Obino's just getting into teaching, and he has no idea what subject he wants to teach. It's his first day student teaching at McClure North High School in the St. Louis area, and a teacher there named Jake Lipinski was teaching this entrepreneurship class, and it also happened to be the very day he was having his first baby. And Jake decided to hand Obino a book that just said entrepreneurship on it and said, here you go, teach this class. And he left for the hospital without any more guidance, and Obino ate it up. Like, man, my first job I'm getting, I'm bringing this with me. So when I got hired on here three years ago, uh, the first year... Uh, so this is Normandy. So this is Normandy. This is Normandy Schools Collaborative. Normandy right now is the only unaccredited high school in the state of Missouri. The only. The only high school that's unaccredited. They're unaccredited because their student achievement was so abysmal. It was frequent for teachers not to show up to class and without consequence. So the state took over the school that was also labeled the most dangerous school in St. Louis. And that had consequences. Uh, so basically what that means is kids that, because basically, you know, you, you go to the school that you live around. Whatever school district you fall in is where you go to. But us being unaccredited, meaning kids has a, since the since school district is unaccredited, kids has a right to, to go to different schools. Mm-hmm. And we have to pay for them. Yep. Transportation. Yep. So my first year here, I think on the state of Missouri, it's like a scale, like a, it's like 140 points. On that scale, we had 12 points out of 140. Last year, I think we had like 80 points. So between those three years, this is just as, and, and what they did was, so they went from Normandy, Normandy School District to Normandy Schools Collaborative. So they changed, they fired, because once you change the school district, because the problem in education is like tenureship. It's hard to get rid of those, te- those, those teachers that's been there, you know, 20 years. Because it's hard to get them, you know, you got the union and all that. So when they changed the, I don't know if it's a smart thing they did. So when they changed the school district, everybody had to reapply for their job. So this is like a whole brand new school district. So everybody lasts tenureship, the tenureship. So they fired a bunch of people. And I was, I was one of the ones they kind of hired, like the kind of fresh blood to bring in the school district. Because when the state took over three years ago, 
That's what that's what their game plan. Get rid of cause they cause they did their homework and figure why is the school failing. So they figured that out. They scrapped the whole curriculum. It was just it was just bare bare necessities. Uh, English, math, reading, no honors courses, no AP courses, nothing. I think my first year we just taught personal finance and computer apps, and that was it. Um, my second year we kind of brought back some of the courses, and I, and I was like, well, I wanna. I want to introduce this entrepreneurship piece. And, you know, the cool thing about our administration is there are totally four kids. You know, I didn't have to turn no long plan or anything like that. He loved it. And, and so this is the second year having his entrepreneurship course here. Why does he love it? Because um, entrepreneurship, to be an entrepreneur, world of business, it encompasses so many other things you need to have. The math skills, the reading skills, the speaking skills the thinking skills, the critical thinking. So the whole curriculum encompasses everything. Obino was still a relatively new teacher, and I was curious how he dealt with something that can affect every type of class. Some teachers I've heard say, like, you either gain your students or you lose your students on your first day. Just how your, your students walk into your classroom, <clears throat> they see you and they're able to say, I'm going to take this teacher seriously or not. I think, I think... Uh, I think as far as the the behavior management is definitely set the first couple of days uh, as far as who's going to be in charge of that classroom. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's definitely set. I think sometimes as uh, far as like getting involved in the content, it might t- some people catch it early, some people catch it late, mm-hmm. but you can always get the involvement of come. But once you lose your classroom, uh, once you haven't set those expectations whether it's cool to walk in with a with, with your cell phone on or it's cool to talk while I'm talking if you let those behavior go it's hard for you to, to reset it and I learned that my my first year here and even like even now what I was just did you make your first year um I, I wouldn't say being too nice I, I, I would say not being as firm as I need mm-hmm. to be the first couple of days just so you could just save yourself time and energy on the back end because a lot of behaviors you can save yourself, you know what I'm saying, as far as. But there's two things I've learned as a teacher that you control 100%. There's two things. You know those two things? Though? What no. do you think? Take it, what do you think the two things you are? As a teacher, there's two things you control with uttermost power and ruthlessness and totalitarian authority. I don't know, your you preparation know? and your attitude? Nah, no, nah, I. <laughs> Who walks in your classroom okay. and where they sit. And that's it. That's it. That's the only two things you control. Who walks in your classroom and where they sit in your classroom. And you have to control those two things. Because a kid might come in my classroom jumping and playing. I tell him to leave. And what I'm doing, I'm setting the tone as he's walking in my classroom. And, it, and each classroom is different. You know what I'm saying? And the teachers that I, that I hear... About cell phones, I also complain about cell phones is, do you let them walk in the classroom with a cell phone? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the problem. Because now, now you got to deal with that cell phone problem five minutes into class. Yeah. But if you stop it at the door, you don't have to worry about it. You know what I'm saying? You're saying who comes in your class? Like, do you kick them out of the class? Ooh, you're going to say, like, you're no, not going to give them I give, I give, give them a choice. Okay. Either you can put your cell phone away or you can keep it out. But if you put it away, you're more than welcome to come in. If you keep it out, you got to stay in the hallway. But you can always come in when you're ready to pull out. So you don't, it, it, you don't really have to kick kids out. You just give them a choice. Yeah. Okay? 
You know, and, and that's what it is. And most kids, most kids will make the right choice. Inside almost all of us, even these, the most challenging students, we want to be successful. As the owner of Johnsonville Sausage once told me, no one wakes up in the morning wanting to fail, except for a few cuckoo birds. On to Mr. Coley's entrepreneurship class. How does he make it come to life? The key thing is being a teacher, you have to link it to their, to their understanding. So I might talk about Jay-Z, mm-hmm. Birdman, and I'm not going to talk about Martha Stewart. You know? They might, you know, and then I, I might talk about starting a record label or start, you know, you know whatever it may be. You know, businesses, even like even even with the illegal drug trade, that's still a business. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's still the same concepts of a business. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? When we're talking about, you know, market shares, you know, we use Apple and Android a lot. You know what I'm saying? And we talk about market shares and products. That's the same concept when it comes to drug dealers and all that and all that and all those type of things. Because instead of market share, you're talking about city blocks. You know what I'm saying? When, yeah. when we see people killing over city blocks, they're trying, they trying to capture that block to increase their market mm-hmm. share so they can sell their product. So it's all the same concept. See, my goal is to, is to take a kid that has the same, that has the, 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 the who dare to have the, the audacity to, to, to go into a business where you could get killed, spend your rest of your life in jail, and still be brave enough to do it, to take that same kid and take that same energy, but using it in a positive way. You know, you could you could create a business. You you could because there's there's a, there's a lot of intangible things that you know a growing up in an environment like this gives you that you don't get growing up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain grit and rigor you develop in streetwise and and not taking no for an answer that these kids have that these other kids don't have. You know, I like my kids are soft. Like my kids, they grow up, man. Like my kids are, you know, they couldn't survive in the environment because, because you know, it's like Skokie to them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, they they wouldn't make it in in the, in the urban district. You yeah. know, but these kids, they have they have something like you know. I like Jay Z said, it, I got my MBA from Marcy Projects. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And that's the type of grit that they have. They just don't have the opportunity to use it in a positive way. And this class gives them that opportunity. Gives them the opportunity to start their very own business. Each student has to come up with their own business idea. And the final exam is their full written up business plan, detailed with all the concepts they learned about in class. And if they're serious about their business, Mr. Coley will take it to another level with them, leveraging his connections and Nifty's connections to help them with it. Connections that can be virtually non-existent in an inner city where the greatest connection is the drug dealer. I tell them, I am not wasting adults' time. You know, you have to be serious. If you're going to take this course, and you, if you just want to take it to a grade, like I, I have an like a, a Excel document, and it's two columns. Bring it to life, taking it for a grade. And I ask them, do you want to bring this to life, or you just want to take it for a grade? And they tell me, I just want to take it for a grade, and I check that box. And some people say, I want to bring it to life. And I check that box. Bring it to life or take the grade. What a great way to put things. We just love this guy. Obino Coley. More on his story here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Alex's conversation with Obino Coley, St. Louis teacher who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class with a curriculum that's provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And if you recall, he's the teacher of those two young boys who were going to New York City because they did so well under Obino's instruction, and that was Raheen and Damon. Let's take a listen. The business idea of Mr. Coley's two most serious students, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney, who he calls by their last names, is what they've named the double backer packer. One backpack that's on your back and another that's on your chest, both connected by a shoulder strap and designed to more evenly distribute a bag's weight on your body, especially if you can't fit all of your stuff into one bag. How did they come up with the name? Do you remember the process of, did they have other names? Man, he, I, I remember the day he came and said, the double backer packer, man. I said, man, I wanted to kick him out, man. Because it was, <laughs> it, was it was a ridiculous idea I ever heard, man. But then I thought about the Snuggie, man. I said, oh, man, the Snuggie. You know what the Snuggie is, yeah, right? Yeah. The Snuggie has grossed over $200 million, man. Believe it or not, man. And knowing that, I was like, no, I, I didn't I didn't see it like how I see it now when he first said it. I was like, man, that'll make no sense, man. Okay? But that's the beautiful thing about it. He believed in it. And that's all it takes. They've made it all the way to the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's national pitch competition in New York City. And that has a grand prize of $25,000 for high school students. What's been most rewarding for you in this job? These kids right here, man. Those kids. Because those kids probably are not entrepreneurs. You know, never really probably, you know, sat down and started thinking about ideas. Larry's kind of the brains behind the operation. And, like, that wasn't his first idea. He, he had, like, a different idea. He was, like, waterproof earbuds or whatever, something like that. And one day he came to me like, oh, I got an idea. The double backer packer, you know what I'm saying? Like how you come up with it, and it's and it's it's really the mindset of trying to change, especially our demographics. Quit being consumers all the time and be creators. All these apps that you're playing with, somebody created that and made millions of dollars, and they take those millions of dollars and they give back to their community, they give back to their university, you know, they give back to whatever they want to. So as African Americans, we need more entrepreneurs, we need more millionaires. So at the end of the day, we don't have to rely on the federal government. We can support our own selves. Obino's immigrant parents taught him how to take care of himself as they took care of themselves. I don't know if you've said thank you to your parents for all they've done for you. And for oh, definitely. This country, but, you know, if your dad was, your, your mom was sitting here with us right now, what would you say to them? Uh, I would, my dad, always, I, actually, I talk to him all the time, man. You know, dad, I would say thank you for having such a sucky job. And motivate me to to get an education because that was one that was one of the things I always said to myself. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, have a job like he had. I want to have a job that I enjoy coming yeah. to. Okay, he didn't have a job coming to man, so I I appreciate that. Uh, mom, my mom's a little bit different, man. I, 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 let me tell let me tell you a funny story about my mom. I remember one day I had to be in middle school. I had to be in middle school, and I. It was a Sunday because I had a Sunday. I remember having my Sunday clothes on. We went to a Target, and I had a clipper set at home, but I didn't have any guards that you put on the clippers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
I remember I had a, like it's back in the days we had we had pullovers. Pullovers were like the biggest things, and I had so I had a Cleveland Browns pullover, and I remember was at, at Target, and I opened up the uh, the package, and I put the Clipper guards in my pullover, and we walked out the store, and security arrested me for stealing. And I, I, my mom, my mom was so mad at me for stealing. And I was surprised. I thought she was going to whoop me. And she didn't whoop me, man. You know what she did? She sent you to prison. No, she didn't send me to prison, man. <laughs> What'd you do? She didn't talk to me, man. She didn't talk to me for like two weeks. Two weeks? Two weeks. But listen, she didn't talk to me. And to, 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 to not have my mother speak to me be so utterly disgusted with me, that was a feeling. I would, I would rather take a whooping to disappoint your mother like that. Wow. Uh, and I've never, and that was the last time I've ever stolen anything in my life. So here's the, so here's the funny story about it. So I was interviewing for a job at Aaron's. I interviewed a job, and I, you know, I actually walked off with the pencils. So I'm driving down the street, and I have the pen in my hand. I'm like, oh, I'm accident. I just, I'm accident. Yeah. So I turn around. It's like I'm driving like way down the street. So I turn around, and the guy that I interviewed with, I said, oh, my bad. I took your pen on accident. I gave it back to him, and I walked out. And I got the job, and like a month later, like a, like maybe like six months into the job, but he asked me, do I know why I got the job? I'm like, nah, I know why I got the job. He said, because I knew you wouldn't steal from me. Because he took that pen and brought it back to me. That's awesome. And that's all because my mom didn't talk to me when I stole something. You know, and, that, and that's, a, that's a funny thing about life, man. Yeah. And you, you just never know what lessons you learn, you know, that, that helps you get certain places in life. And I needed that job, too, man, at that time. <laughs> so, you know. With the interview over, Obino graciously walked me out of the school into my car. I thought we would just be making some small talk on the way, so I wasn't recording. But he started telling me when we were walking about their school's fascinating program to get every kid in an internship experience out in the working world during high school in which they get academic credit for. And so I quickly pulled out my cell phone and started recording. We're trying to get more, like, say, in, in the marketing pathway. So those kids that like marketing, we'll get them a job in marketing. Yeah. So they get that experience. So, so when they graduate high school, they can say, I had three months working here. You know? And so in your off time, you are out there trying to find more places for these kids to work. Uh, man, I'm always thinking about these. I'd be in the shower thinking about these kids. <laughs> I had an idea, man. So it's all about the kids, man. Because at the end of the day, this is what, this is going to make the world better. Even one less kid committing crimes, or one less kid committing a murder. Even, even the knuckleheads, man. Like even these kids don't want to go. I was like, I was like, like, okay, what's going on, man? Yeah. What's up? I just had a kid. I just had a kid, and um. And uh, he had an ankle bracelet on. So you know, you know, you hear, you hear what's going on. Like he stole the car or whatever. And I knew I just felt like my time was limited with him. And and one of the things I learned in life is how to change your life. Yeah. So the last time I saw him, I wrote on a piece of paper. I gave him my secret, man. I said, if you ever want to change uh, your life, you have to change the words that you listen to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And one thing about me, when I, when, I, when, I, when I changed my life, I changed the words I listened to. That, and that meant I changed the music I listened to. I changed the people I hung around with. I changed the places that I go. And I wrote that down. 
I wrote that down on a sheet of paper and I gave it to him. And like two, three days later, his name's off my roster. And today in class, I'm like, what happened to Booker? Uh, he got he went to he got he got locked up. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I don't I don't know how his story ends, but I can look in the mirror and said, I seen him. And I did everything I could to help him. You know, and most kids look at that kid like most kids are like I ain't helping him. I mean, he's he's already going down that path. Yeah. That's not your job to, as a teacher to decide. You know, how how his life ends up. It's like that that little interaction you have with them. Did you did, can you look in, your, in the mirror and say you did everything you could? You know what I'm saying? And I didn't know that's the last time I saw him. You know, but I just that's just being a teacher. You know, every day you 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 in. 80 kids' lives. You got 80 kids every day. Yeah. And, you know, I got my own five kids. But those moments, man, you have to say, did you do everything to help that kid while he was in your class? Because you never know. And what's mm-hmm. great is you, even if he doesn't follow you in this moment, you put a thought in his head that he can go back to. Yeah. You know, five years from now, he can think about what you said yeah, and, and, and I, go back and to and it. And I wrote it down, and I remember him grabbing and putting his pocket. And, and those are those moments, man. And that might mean something, might not mean nothing. Yeah. No, but the point is, he can't. He can't say that he didn't have no adult he couldn't go to or could ask about something. You know, that's at the end of the day, that's all it is. And that's not all it is. What a great story! If this country had more teachers like Obino Coley, my goodness, what a difference! A difference maker, Normandy High School. He teaches entrepreneurship classes sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. What a story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and you're listening to Pomp and Circumstance just the part that you don't know because I didn't know I had to ask Jesse this is good what is it and he said it's later on in the song it's the part no one ever hears and that's why we're playing it for you and we're playing commencement speeches all month the entire month of May and this special hour we had Tom Wolfe and that's right Tom Wolfe of Bonfire and the Vanities and and the right stuff one of my favorite novelists, one of America's great novelists, especially in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And then, of course, we heard from Steve Jobs. And now we're about to hear from Denzel Washington and what a career he's had. There's no need to dig into it except to say that you know his movies. And he's won two Oscars, and he also won a Tony for the play Fences in 2010. So the guy knows how to act on film and on the stage, and not many do. So now let's hear from him as he congratulates the class of Dillard University. Let's join him. Let me uh, take this moment to wholeheartedly congratulate each and every one of you today. You graduated. You did it. You made it. Congratulations to you. And you did it all by yourselves. Nobody helped you. No, that's not that's what You know, that's what I thought when I was... Uh, when I was young, I uh, starting to really make it as an actor. 
I came in, I talked to my mother. I said, Ma, did you think that this was going to happen? I'd be so big and I'll be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that and I can. She said, boy, stop it right there. Stop it right there. Stop it right there. He said, if you only knew how many people that have been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer cloths she gave me, how many times she splashed me with holy water. <laughs> <laughs> to save my sorry behind her, she said it. She said, oh, you did it by yourself? I tell you what you can do by yourself. You can go outside, get a mop and a bucket and wash them windows. You can do that by yourself, superstar. <laughs> you can do that by yourself, superstar. And let's rejoin Denzel as he talks about something you don't hear often from Hollywood actors. Put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things, everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. Indeed. And now we hear about what real success in life is to Denzel and the meaning of money. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I don't care how much money you make, you can't take it with you. The Egyptians tried it. They got robbed. That's all they got. You can't take it with you. With you. And it's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. We all have different talents. Some of you will be doctors, some lawyers, some scientists, some educators, some nurses. Some teachers, yeah, okay. (laughs) Some preachers. The most selfish thing you can do in this world is help someone else. Why is it selfish? Because the gratification, the goodness that comes to you, the good feeling, the good feeling that I get from helping others, nothing's better than that. Well, one or two things, but nothing's better than that. Not, Not jewelry, not big house I have, not the cars, but the, the, it's the joy. That's where the joy is in helping others. That's where the success is in helping others. And here is Denzel Washington's address to the students at Dillard University. Again, this was last year. He's going to touch on a common theme we have heard in many of our commencement speeches, and that is the topic of failure. Fail big. That's right. Fail big. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life, and it can be, it can be very frightening. It, it's a new world out there. It's a mean world out there, and you only live once. So do what you feel passionate about, passionate about. Take chances professionally. Don't be afraid to fail. There's an old IQ test was nine dots, and you had to draw five lines with a pencil within these nine dots without lifting the pencil. The only way to do it was to go outside the box. So don't be afraid to go outside the box. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to fail big, to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. And they ultimately fuel 
disappointment. So have dreams, but have goals, life goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, daily goals. I try to give myself a goal every day. Sometimes it's just to not curse somebody out. <laughs> Simple goals, but have goals. And understand that to achieve these goals, you must apply discipline and consistency. In order to achieve your goals, you must apply discipline, which you have already done, and consistency every day, not just on Tuesday and miss a few days. You have to work at it every day. You have to plan every day. You've heard the saying, we don't plan to fail. We fail to plan. Hard work works. Working really hard is what successful people do. And in this text, tweet, twerk world that you've grown up in, <laughs> remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Indeed, and here is the conclusion of Denzel Washington's commencement speech at Dillard University. Let's take a listen. Finally, I pray that you put your slippers way under the bed tonight so that when you wake up in the morning, you have to get on your knees to reach them. And while you're down there, say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. That's how I live my life. That's Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sit beforehand to indicate that it's yours already. I'll say it again. True desire in the heart, that itch that you have, whatever it is you want to do, that thing that you want to do to help others and to, to grow and to make money, that desire, that itch, that's God's proof to you. Sit beforehand already to indicate that it's yours. And again, you're not going to hear that commencement speech from many actors, though there are a lot more people in Hollywood that share this view than people know. And I know a few myself. And by the way, you can go to certain churches in Hollywood and you can see them. Certain Catholic churches where you can see Gary Oldman going in all the time. He was the co-actor in Book of Eli. Not, not public and not out there in a, in, a, in, a, in a public way, but just a private way. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't count out all the folks in Hollywood. You'll never hear the words Holly Weird here on our American stories. Lots of good people there trying to do good work. And on our American stories, we love to talk about Bob Dylan, about Barbara Streisand. We did a great hour on both of them. Very different artists from very different places. My goodness, you couldn't be more different from different actual places, Minnesota and Brooklyn. 
and yet the impact these two people had on music world, you have to do both. And it's very different kinds of music. On our American stories, we do that. We honor the people of this country, secular and Christian and, well, Jewish and atheist. No difference to us. And just celebrating what's good and decent in the country. And we'll have more commencement addresses uh, in the coming days, and particularly the really bad ones. We promised you them, and we're hunting them down. And again, the Duke University professors, please again go to it. And may, we may just have a few highlights from it one more time because it's just so wretched and it's so funny. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And take a listen to all of it. And here's Pomp and Circumstance again. We start and end at the same place. More after these messages. Again, this is Lee Habib, Our American Stories. <laughs> 